2: hey, 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 hey
3: but filling in for Dave. Good morning, everybody. It is 6.06 in the morning, still dark outside, but we've got plenty to talk about. As you recall, just uh, by the way, uh, Dave, as you recall, is on vacation all this week and next Monday, and I will be filling in for him both in this morning block. And don't forget the Dave Ellswick show plays every evening at 6 p.m. also on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Tune in all day for outstanding conservative commentary and news. Yesterday, we spoke, as we often do, about how mainstream media is no longer and can no longer present itself as a legitimate news service. The New York Times has presented itself over the years as a news organization but they're not a news organization any longer. They're a commentary organization. Now, to be clear, we have publications that are commentary publications, and that is a legitimate method of transferring information, but not by deceiving the reader and claiming you're a news organization. And one of the ways in which the New York Times Perpetuates this fraud on the public is in addition to overpopulating their front page with what they call opinion pieces, what they admit are opinion pieces, is now they have their news reporters, which traditionally, historically, have been kept entirely separate from the editorial page folks, they have them writing so called news analyses. And a news analysis as denominated by the New York Times, is nothing more than an opinion piece. And I discussed this with you yesterday on the air. I discovered just yesterday afternoon, that is, that Alan Dershowitz, who I was talking about on the morning show, in fact, has just started a podcast. So I went and listened to the first two episodes. They're short. They're not bad. I think he might need a little warming up. Uh, Some people say that about me in terms of both substance and voice quality, and they may be right. But in any event, uh, my competence aside or lack thereof, I think Dershowitz is doing a good job, but he'll get even better at that. And interestingly, he said exactly what I said about news analysis. Now, he didn't steal it from me because I looked at the date on that podcast, and it actually took place several days ago. So why do I bring this up? To say that I'm not original, even though I thought I was? Sure, I'm fine with that, but that's not the reason. I bring this up to say that it is apparent to those who observe the world with a critical eye, and that's one of the trainings that we get in law school, Alan Dershowitz, as you Likely recall, is a a retired law professor, 50 years, I believe, at Harvard Law School. And so he came to the exact same conclusion as me. One might say I came to the same conclusion as he did, uh, depending on how one views the ranking of Allen versus me. And I'm happy uh, to have the comparison done in either order. But he said exactly the same thing that I told you here in Little Rock. So guess what, folks? We're not as behind the times as some might allege. Alan Dershowitz said the New York Times is no longer an arbiter of truth, is no longer independent, is no longer unbiased, and is no longer a news organization. They are an opinion piece. And if they want to present themselves as such, so be it. There are plenty of opinion pieces. Of course, we see opinion shows on television all the time. A lot of times in the Sunday morning shows, right? Those are they, they will interview someone in the beginning and then they will have their opinion discussion later. It's a little bit of crossover there. And that can be dangerous and has been dangerous in terms of objectivity. But nonetheless, We know what opinion pieces are. And that's why we know the New York Times has become an opinion rag. Yes, I guess the use of the term rag is a little bit uh, um, uh, as a a, a put down. So be it. But one, one can have an opinion piece that we don't call a rag. And maybe if the New York Times admitted that they were an opinion piece, I wouldn't call them a rag. We'll see. So why do I start with this whole introduction other than to say that my views, as it turns out, mirror those of the great Alan Dershowitz? And to be clear, Alan Dershowitz is the first to tell you he's a big liberal. He didn't vote for Trump. I don't don't know if he said he's going to vote for Biden or not, but I suspect he is. So we don't agree at all on national election politics. We agree on some politics because he has what used to be the universally held view in the United States. That is that Israel is a friend of the United States and the United States is it should be a friend of Israel and we're allies. That used to not be a left versus right issue. That used to be a right versus wrong issue but now the left is anti-israel being anti-israel is part of the new left they have built it into their platform look at the platform of the black lives matter matters movement they have commentary on Israel there even. How do you have an organization whose focus is on American black lives and you have a conversation about Israel? what? What just happened there? How'd that happen? And it shows you the truth. It reveals the truth. And what's that truth? That the Black Lives Matters movement is situated within the neo-Marxist movement. And the neo-Marxist movement is an international movement, is an international movement seeking to bring down the democratic establishment. And of course, by democratic, I mean democracy, not the political party. I have no problem using the term democratic when we refer to democracy. I have no problem using it to refer to Democrats either. But I don't support Democrats. I do support democracy. Democracy. Neo-Marxism does not support democracy. Anyway, I'm talking about how the New York Times has become uh, an opinion piece. In about a minute or so, is going to break in, uh, as Heidi ordinarily does, and we'll take a break. But before he does so, I'm going to start talking about an opinion piece in the New York Times. Now, this piece is an admitted opinion piece. We must at least acknowledge they are sometimes honesty. The New York Times sometimes honesty when they put out an opinion piece under the title of an opinion piece. So kudos for doing what you always do and admitting it at least sometimes. So the title of the piece is those Biden gaffes, gaffes in quotes, some key voters actually like them. We're going to go through this piece. Paragraph by paragraph. But what's interesting already is how you see the New York Times being an apologist for Biden. When Trump does it, it's a horror show. When Biden does it, oh, they're not gaffes. They're actually a good thing. People should actually like those things. It's really remarkable. How the New York Times and so much of mainstream media goes around tripping over itself to make excuses for Biden. No objective viewer can believe that Biden's gaffes are a good thing for him, no less for the country. At best, you can say, well, okay, he makes some mistakes. We all make mistakes. I think President Trump makes mistakes. I know he does because we all make mistakes. So instead of saying, okay, we all make mistakes, some are worse than others, biting the gaffes may be worse than others, better than some, that's the best I think the New York Times could say. They try to turn it around on you. They try to gaslight you. That's a phrase, by the way, borrowed from a movie in which the character in the movie tries to convince someone who saw something that he didn't actually see it, he or she. I don't recall. No, no, you didn't see that. Didn't really happen. Was it was a maybe? she. Maybe it, it was a she. Thanks. Well, do
1: you remember what the movie was, Russ? Uh, you know, I've never seen the whole movie, but uh, yeah. I've 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 heard reference to it and what it's about.
3: And I'm glad you mentioned that because I remember when I first heard the term, I'm like, gaslight. What does that mean? And it comes, I believe, from the title of the movie. So it's not a term that is intuitive, you know. Anyway, Russ, is it time? Is it that time? Robert. Let's do it. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbach, failing in for Dave all week and next Monday. Listen to us, of course, in the morning from 6 to 8 a.m. And then again, the Dave Ellswick Show is on at 6 p.m. on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Uh, and please stay tuned, if you can, all day for interesting news and commentary. We have been talking about how the New York Times has become an opinion piece, and then we have moved on to talk about a specific opinion piece that the New York Times has admitted is in new york excuse me is an opinion piece, so we give them credit for being honest. Where we don't give them credit is that in their opinion piece, they try to embed facts, they try to make a claim that joe biden's gaffes are actually beneficial. The whole notion of a gas is that it is a mistake. People make gas from time to time. Joe Joe Biden doesn't make them from time to time. He makes them quite frequently. Of course, part of the reason now that we see such heightened frequency in Joe Biden's gas making is quite clearly because he has some sort of uh, cognitive disorder going on. One need not be an expert to come to that conclusion. One can be a lay person like you and me and see that there's a cognitive decline in Joe Biden. The same way you can say, oh, my buddy is sneezing and coughing. He's got a cold. And you're not a doctor. You can look at Joe Biden or someone else who has a cognitive decline, who gets tongue-tied and wrapped up in their comments to the point of saying um, things you can't follow, Joe Biden has a cognitive decline. So be it. I actually wish him well, but I wouldn't hire someone to be my president in a cognitive decline. That's why typically candidates that are beginning a cognitive decline try to hide that. And that's why, in large measure, Joe Biden has embedded himself in his basement. It's not. It's not because of the coronavirus. It's because they are trying to hide his cognitive decline from you. So that's why you see this coincidence of facts, where the Democrats keep pushing for more and more restrictions on our ability to go out. So, and by the way, remember, I'm someone who's germophobic. I don't go out unless I really, really have to. But the motive behind. Keeping things shut down for the Democrats is largely not safety. It's politics. They want to keep the economy from growing and they want to keep a, a, a generalized excuse for Joe Biden's lack of interaction with people. Now, yes, it's true. You see him now moving about. Why? Because we're calling him out. And they hear it and it's showing up in the polls. That's why. Even then, though, They have him on a teleprompter to answer questions, not to deliver a scripted speech. That's what a teleprompter is designed for, of course. Instead of having to look down at the paper, you can look forward because it projects essentially on a heads-up display the text of a speech in front of a camera. So the speaker is talking right into the camera instead of looking down to read the paper. That's an old invention. That's fine. What the teleprompter was not designed to do, at least politically, uh, in the sense of being honest to the public, is to have staffers write answers to allegedly impromptu questions provided by the audience or the interviewer. But that's what's going on with Joe Biden. And there's not even a dispute, because you see the Joe Biden Representatives, usually they're a bunch bunch of 12-year-olds, when asked this on the news shows and the Sunday morning shows, they refuse to answer the question. They go into some diatribe about how bad Trump is. It's transparent deflection. So much so that, frankly, I, I wish they continue it because I think they look far worse than just saying, well, sometimes we have them on a teleprompter. I think that looks terrible. I think this looks even worse. And in that same vein of things that look even worse for Joe Biden is the apology machine that has become the New York times, the Joe Biden apology machine. As I said before the break, there is an opinion piece that says the title is those Biden gaffes. Some key voters actually like Them." So, the piece, I was going to call it an article, we can't call it an article, the, the, the paper, the, the document, starts off, if Joe Biden is going to rebuild the Democrats' blue wall and win states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, including the White House, he will need to appeal to the working class Democratic communities that put Donald Trump over the top in 2016. By the way, I love how whenever one of these pundits talk and they want to focus on one group, They say, oh, well, that's a group that put uh, Donald Trump over the top. You know, if they want to criticize Donald Trump for being supported by a different group, uh, rich real estate magnates. Well, the rich real estate magnates put him over the top. Well, every group puts you over the top, right? Because if you need 51 percent or whatever, he got more than that, of course, when it comes to the Electoral College. But let's say he got merely 51 percent. You can attribute that last one percent to any group you want. Right? It can be the what makes you the first one percent or the last one percent? The time you went into the voting booth? Of course we don't know that in any event. So it couldn't even be that, should that be the claim. But that's the group that put him over the top. So it's 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 hyperbole, it's nonsense. The piece goes on to say that that group includes more than 200 counties that supported Barack Obama twice before voting for Mr. Trump. Yeah, because, of course, we know Obama won by large margins and Trump won by a significant margin. So obviously you would have to have a crossover from people who voted for Obama once or twice, I mean, previously,
2: and now voted for Trump
3: says the piece many of these places have long records of unbroken support for democratic presidential candidates some even stretching back before the new deal well and we know and the and the piece is correct we know there were a large number of the working class that had voted for obama that switched so to speak in in the sense that they had voted for a democrat and now voted for a republican of course this was also the case for reagan He was quite well known for this. Well, of course, Reagan won by overwhelming numbers. So it had to be the case because you can't win by such overwhelming numbers and not have amongst your voters working class folks.
2: I grew up in a
3: working class neighborhood. uh, And so I know what working class folks are like. And I was amongst the the working class folks. I don't try to distinguish myself in the sense that I was kid my parents were working class in large measure albeit perhaps not fully fitting that definition there is a description and my parents perhaps didn't fully fit that definition but i would have i do describe my parents uh during most of my life as being working class and certainly economically we were 100% working class. Which uh, This is the Dave Elswick Show. I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave all week and next Monday. Stay tuned every morning, 6 to 8 a.m., as well as 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. in the evening here on 101.1 FM, The Answer.
1: Hey, can I bother you Please. for just a second? Because i got one caveat to say about that 6 to 7. Please. It's every weeknight except for Wednesday nights when – uh Carrie McCoy comes on at six o'clock and has her show up in your business and well, lo and behold, that would be tonight. So tonight's ah, okay. playback the last hour is gonna be at seven PM because Carrie's gonna be in here at six PM. And I think uh, the lady's name is Sabrina Saeed is who she's got on the uh who she's got on. Tonight on Up in Your Business at six o'clock. So now back to you, Robert.
3: Appreciate that, Russ, and, uh, and I'm sure the listeners appreciate knowing that as well. Russ, do we have Chris Corbett calling in? By the way, we had talked uh, during the break that Chris Corbett, local attorney and professional engineer, would be joining us at some point this morning.
1: I'm going to see what his next his latest text message is. He may be waiting uh, for me to call him.
3: Got it. Uh, well, we'll, we'll, uh, get into looking on having Chris join us as he ordinarily does. And in the meantime, uh, we are going to continue our discussion of this New York times, uh, opinion piece in which, uh, the New York times basically serves as an apologist for Joe Biden. So, I started reading the piece before the break. I'm going to continue uh, roughly where I left off. Uh, and that is that the New York times is starting to set up this environment of talking about working class voters and how Joe Biden appeals uh, to these working class uh, voters and somewhere more in the middle of the piece. These authors say people in these communities, meaning working class communities, admire the president because he seems familiar. As someone in Johnston told us, Mr. Trump seems, quote, more human, more like us, the working person, right? The working class person. Mr. Trump's incessant counterpunching called a sign of a thin skin by many observers in professional circles. You see, because we've got to distinguish those Working class folks that the New York Times look down upon from professional circles. Somehow, if you work for a living, you're not professional. I don't think that distinction is a valid way to describe it. Uh, going back to the piece, is often interpreted as common in many working class communities, uh, and so then it goes on. Here's the key to the bias and the snobbery of the New York Times as demonstrated in this piece. Back to the piece, it says, honor cultures provide clear rules for deterring aggression and determining social status. Let me comment on that one line alone for a moment. Honor cultures. You know where we hear the phrase honor cultures? We hear it when we talk about backwards thinking. Honor killings. We see in some third world countries that a woman is killed because she had sex out of wedlock and she dishonored the family and the the male members of that family kill that woman. That's called an honor killing as described about those societies. There's nothing honorable about it, of course, right? It's dishonorable. It's disgusting is what it is. And so that's called an honor killing, and that society is called an honor culture. And here, the New York Times equates the cultures of killing women who engage in sex out of wedlock with working-class Americans. Because this elitist class as represented by the New York Times, is so out of touch with the everyday working man and woman in America and with what real people's lives are about. So honor cultures provide clear rules for deterring aggression and determining social status, says the New York Times. I don't know if you remember, I used to watch those nature shows. Right, And you'd have the narrator in the background whispering. Of course, the narration was provided after the fact. They didn't have to whisper because the animals didn't hear it. It was videotaped and then narrated after. But nonetheless,
2: we see in the wild the lion stalks its
3: prey. That's how the New York Times talks about working-class Americans. We see in the wild the working-class man and woman does
2: such-and-such-and-so-and-so.
3: As if working-class folks are somehow strange animals that we observe in the wild. Working-class folks are the backbone of America. I don't look down upon others, by the way. I don't look down upon academics. I'm an academic! And academics are generally not considered part of the, quote, working-class, end quote. So be it. Whatever. I don't say that as a point of pride. I prefer to be characterized as working class. But my salary is too high, and the work that I do doesn't require me to take a shower at night. It requires me to take a shower in the morning. Those are some of the distinguishing characteristics of working class and non-working class.
1: So what do we see? Hey, While you're on the topic of working class, we've got one of the hardest working classes of people on the air right now.
3: And is that who's that? Chris Corbett joining Chris us? Corbett. <laughs> Wonderful, Chris. It's great to have you on. Now, Chris, uh, speaking of working class, you told me the story, and I've repeated it on the air with you before. How you come from a family of masons, and, and I mean that quite literally—generations
1: of Freemasons.
3: Free no, not one. Although I think there's some connection <laughs> no. there as well, but but literally bricklayers. Let's, let's not get too fancy. You come from a family of bricklayers, and your first job, if I recall correctly, was as a bricklayer's assistant. You didn't lay the bricks. You carried the bricks. You carried the mortar. And what was the lesson that you learned from one summer of being a bricklayer?
2: <laughs> That's a good question. The lesson I learned is laying bricks, hard work. And going to school was a lot easier.
3: Exactly. Chris and I and many others who have pursued education, and don't get me wrong, we are quite proud of our accomplishments in pursuing education. But we pursued education because we had the means to do so, and we understood that it would lead to a life that was less onerous. I point that out to say the working class life is a hard-working life, and it deserves respect, not the disrespect where the New York Times says, well, let's look upon that strange culture, that animal in the wild called the working-class man and woman, and how they observe honor culture, as if it's some sort of foreign body that needs to be observed from afar. It's really quite insulting the way the New York Times looks down upon the everyday common, and by common I don't mean to diminish them. I mean all around us, working class man and woman. So this piece, as Chris, you probably heard before you joined us on the line. By the way, Chris Corbett is an attorney here in uh, Little Rock, Conway, Central Arkansas area. He is a patent attorney, which is a specific license that one must get to do patent work. It's not just because he puts that title in front of his name. You can call yourself uh, 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 an attorney who engages in business law just by saying it. But to be a patent attorney, you need to be licensed. And he's an engineer and a professional engineer. And the latter also, the title of professional engineer, you must take a test and be licensed as a professional engineer. And there are not many professional engineers in Arkansas. There are not many patent attorneys in Arkansas. And how many patent attorneys that are professional engineers, you could probably count on one or two hands. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, Chris, we're talking about this apology piece for Joe Biden's gas. And we're in the middle of it. And it says a citizen, especially a man must not tolerate insults and must show his readiness to respond with violence. If necessary, That how the New York Times describes the working class as this body politic of individuals living out in the wild. It's like describing a cougar hunting its prey. Well, the cougar must respond with violence if attacked by a bear. I don't know if cougars are attacked by bears, but you take my meaning. This is so insulting that especially a man... By the way, as we talked about previously this week on the Dave Ellswick show, notice how it's okay to group men as a category and talk about them disparagingly. You can't group virtually anybody else that way. But men, yeah, that's okay. You can do that. That's okay. Uh, and, And to say that a man must respond with violence if he lives in this community. That's the culture. Nonsense. Nonsense. That's a caricature is what that is. That's a B-movie description of working-class American. That's an insult is what that is. It goes on to say that the working-class man may dislike the expectations of honor culture, but he is not free to ignore them.
2: He's bound
3: by this culture. The New York Times has declared he's bound by this culture. Because the working man, class, the working class man, Chris, according to New York Times, can't think. No, yeah.
2: isn't that remark crazy? It's like it's crazy. What are they, way back in caveman times.
3: Yeah,
2: <laughs> that's right. It's a caveman up a, be, yeah. Be ready to pick up your club and smash somebody over the head. Exactly. It's like
3: a Geico commercial, but then you see the caveman in the Geico commercial walking by, feeling insulted by the characterization of the caveman. The piece goes on to say, in a a context where ignoring a challenge is always, by the way, always, when is always the right answer? Always interpreted as cowardice rather than magnanimity. That's a tough one. Uh, To protect oneself, a person must respond in a prescribed way. A social reputation for toughness is everything. It must always be defended and maintained. How does the New York Times get away with making these abhorrent blanket comments about working class Americans? Why? Because, Chris, there are certain groups that you can insult. You can insult men, you can insult whites, and you can insult working class, which is often inaccurately described as only white men. Of course it's not. But you see what they do here is they create these concentric circles of evil in which the elite left can scapegoat certain groups in society and those groups are generally white, male, working class. So if you've hit the trifecta of white, male, working class well, you're the embodiment of
1: evil. You're the I'm bad evil guy right now, Robert. Because I hate to tell you this, but we need to take a quick time out, brother. Let's do it. And I embody that evilness. You're listening to the Dave Ellswick Show. Robert Steinbach sitting in for Dave Ellswick on vacation. We'll be back in just a moment.
3: The Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave. All week and next Monday, remember Dave is on in the morning from 6 to 8 a.m. And then uh, during the evening uh, from 6 to 7, except on Wednesdays, as Russ aptly points out. So tonight it will be from 7 to 8, and that's the case generally on Wednesdays. Uh, please tune in uh, tonight as well as throughout the day to 101.1 FM, the answer for both news and commentary we have on the line with us. Uh, My regular uh, sidekick co-host, I say sidekick, of course, maybe I'm his sidekick uh, because he's a much bigger man than I am. Uh, Chris Corbett, uh, attorney, patent attorney, engineer, professional engineer. Chris, you have more degrees than a
2: thermometer. It's difficult to follow. (laughs) I, I was talking about what I was thinking about when you said that is my weight gain during COVID, my 20 pounds. I'm going back to two days, Rob. I'm going to work out in the morning and work out in the evening.
3: <laughs> you got a little uh, uh, COVID, uh, COVID uh, Sheen about you there. COVID twenty, COVID twenty. It's like a freshman twenty, but you got the COVID twenty. That's <laughs> right. Well, uh, Chris, you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to work that off because we need you uh, in prime fighting shape when I'm able to convince you. I think I'm moving in that direction well when I'm able to convince you to run for Arkansas State Senate in 2022 out of the Conway area. Uh, because you, we need voices like yours in the Arkansas Senate. We have some outstanding voices, of course, already. Uh, and I'll, I can mention some names, but every time I do, I forget to mention some others. But we have been moving towards a conservative Senate. We've had a Republican Senate for some time. That's not the same as a conservative Senate. And we've been moving towards a conservative Senate and adding your voice will only improve that conservative uh, voice. Uh, because, as you know, the senator up there right now, who is conservative, will be running, she has already announced, for lieutenant governor. And so we will have an open seat. And what we need up there is someone who knows how to work, who carried, for example, bricks and mortar for a living, who got his hands dirty. You were quite literally a garbage man uh, putting yourself through school. Uh, so you are a self-made man and, and you are hardworking. You continue to work. You're out in the working world, exposing, uh, uh, being exposed rather to people in the working world, not living a, clo- a cloistered life uh, with a silver spoon in your mouth. Uh, you know what the working class is about. Uh, and that's what we're talking about in this article. In fact, the working class man, as I said, I grew up in a working-class environment. Uh, you have lived in a working-class environment. We know what it means to be working-class. And I'm not claiming currently to be in the working-class because I have pursued a different path. That doesn't make my path better. It doesn't make it worse. It makes it different. But if you never had exposure to the working-class, if you don't understand what working-class life is like, you shouldn't be representing people In elected office, I'm sorry. You need to have some understanding, some exposure to the working class man and woman to be able to represent them well. And they are the backbone of America. They're not the only force in America that is good, but they are the backbone of America. And we must respect them in the way that is the opposite of what The New York Times does. You know, The New York Times, I read to you, Chris, in the audience uh, prior to the break how the new york times equates living in a working class environment with an honor culture in which violence is the only proper response so let me ask you this chris what would the left what would mainstream media say if someone if a conservative no less made the same claim about the culture in some third world country the culture in some islamic nation do you think that the the commentator who made those comments would get away with that?
2: Oh, let he, he crucified, Rob, crucified. exactly yeah. right. Listening to your yeah, listening to your comments, I just I some Bible quotes were coming to my head. You know, idle hands do the devil's work. If a man mm-hmm. doesn't work, he can't. He shall not eat you know this is um there's some basic uh things that we need to get back to some simple basic truths of life and um these things are clear they're not muddied up and hard to figure out and, I, amen
3: yeah the new york times literally pulled the opinion piece written by tom cotton of course everyone knows our senator but more broadly A United States senator wrote an opinion piece that was fine, by the way, and they pulled it. They pulled it, and yet here they disparage working-class Americans as necessarily having to resort to violence, a claim that had they made it about a culture in a third-world country, a culture in an Islamic nation, they would have, as you aptly say, again, no pun intended, been crucified for it. I think I hear the music starting, so we're going to go to our break, and we will be back after these messages. The Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbach, filling in for Dave all week. And next Monday, we have on the line with us, of course, Chris Corbett, local attorney and professional engineer. And if I understand correctly, we have Congressman French Hill joining us. Are you there, Congressman?
4: Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Chris.
3: How are you, sir?
4: Glad to be with you.
3: I know, of course, you're very busy, and these are difficult times, and you're trying to represent—well, you're doing a good job, no less—of representing the interests of our Kansans in Washington. But I start to say trying because Nancy Pelosi is often interfering with that. So why don't we talk about first what's going on with the attempts to provide further relief— regarding COVID and how the Democrats are interfering with this. And before I turn it over to you, I want to say this, Congressman, I believe myself to be objective. And I used to believe that there were some Democrats out there with whom I would agree. And years ago, when I lived up in New York, there were some conservative Democrats there. I even supported some conservative Democrats like Pat Moynihan. But I got to tell you, it's no longer the case. So my question to you in the context of COVID is, have I become too partisan or has the left gone over the cliff?
4: Nancy Pelosi has had her Democratic conference in the House of Representatives taken over by the Bernie Sanders progressive left. They dominate her conference meetings. They dominate her agenda setting. And she is now essentially on the some puppet strings of the votes they control, which is not an insignificant amount. I'd say 60 or 80 votes in the House Democratic Conference. And these people want to defund the police. These people uh, want single-payer health care takeover, so we have no choice in control over our health care in our lives. Uh, they are for open borders. They're not for uh, the U.S. leading on international defense type policies. So She's in trouble on that. They want open voting. They want uh, uh, we vote uh, by remote means, and we count the votes after Election Day. They want 16-year-olds to vote. They want same-day registration on Election Day. This is where Bernie Sanders has taken the Democratic Party, and that's what we're stuck with. So Speaker Pelosi has been the single blocking point to further coronavirus relief for our testing, for our small businesses, for our educators, for our health professionals, because she's asking, Robert, for a trillion dollars extra <laughs> for big blue state governments uh, as an essential uh, gap-closing device for any of them who shut down their whole economy. And let me give you a quick example. Arkansas, Texas. California and New York have something in common. Gosh, what could that be? About 2,000 cases per 100,000 citizens, meaning we have about the same infections in our states, Texas, California, Arkansas, uh, and New York. Amazing, right? Well, what that tells you is this infection moves through the population no matter what you do in a rather uniform manner. But what's the difference in the state finances? Arkansas, taxes are up 15%. Tax revenues are up. Texas, tax revenues are up 5%. They're down 45% in California. They're down in New York. And Pelosi is trying to get the federal taxpayers to make up for poor management across the blue states that have done a terrible job.
3: It's remarkable how uh, the Democrats are really just looking to support their state Democrat friends. Uh, one distinguishing factor, as you well know, between Arkansas and the other states you mentioned, except New York, is only in New York did the governor murder, murder a bunch of old folks living in old folks' homes, or whatever the more politically correct term for that is, by putting people with COVID into those old folks homes where of course the older folks are infirmed uh, and generally not have the level of resistance of someone who's younger and the mainstream media doesn't even talk about it it's really remarkable he's a hero he's a hero he's a murderer as far as i'm concerned it's it's bonkers and nancy pelosi is so impressed by her title that she's willing to sell out America to the ultra leftists in Congress and elsewhere throughout this country through things like defunding the police. Defunding the police, can you imagine that? It's just mind boggling. So what- When we need her here,
4: Robert, we need her, we need her here leading to get relief for our small businesses. President Trump wants some additional relief for families through an additional uh, economic payment. We need to resolve liability for people trying to reopen their stores, reopen their school, reopen their uh, university so they have liability protection. But Nancy Pelosi is not leading on that. She is the impediment to it. She's busy, you know, breaking her own moral code by going to get her hair cut in a closed salon in San Francisco and not leading here in D.C. by, look, coming to the table and working with Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump on a package of wrapping up Corona relief for this continued pandemic. We've only gotten about a a 50% of our jobs back, and we want to rebuild the economy to the best economy we'd had in 50 years this past January. That's what our goal is as Republicans. And we need the speaker to help pull the wagon and get that across the finish line, not sit in the back and, uh, with a fresh haircut and a great wardrobe.
3: Congressman, could it be that the uh, Democrats and Speaker Pelosi in particular don't want the economy to come back before the presidential election? Well, it's more than just presidential, but that's the key position I think in their minds. Uh, do you think that maybe they're doing this intentionally to keep the, the government, excuse me, the economy slowed down so that people might, they believe, vote for the Democrats.
4: Uh, I just can't be that cynical. I think she just mm-hmm. demands that she wants what she wants, but she knows that every day that there's pain in this country is a chance that somebody will vote against president Trump's reelection and vote against the 16 people that we need to be uh, elected as Republicans to take back the house leadership.
3: Wow. I didn't realize it was that close. That's remarkable. We really that close. Course, that's amazing. <clears throat> of course, Dave's listeners uh, hopefully know that you're up for reelection because you're up uh, every two years as Congress is. Uh, and so uh, we were, in fact, talking about your reelection, uh, your hopeful re-election. I think it'll be the case, mind you, uh, just yesterday on the show uh, and how it's very important for everybody to get out and vote, particularly here where Dave's audience is largest. Uh, in the Pulaski County area uh, so that you can get uh, sufficient votes, uh, as you did, of course, last time, uh, to keep you uh, in office. And I said yesterday, I I could never be an elected official because I can't even remember all the counties in your district. Can you tell us, (laughs) listeners here, uh, which Chris will know, because Chris is fifth-generation Arkansas, but what are the counties in your district?
4: Well, I'm proud to represent the whole central Arkansas metro area, effectively. I've got Saline County, Faulkner County, and Pulaski. Those are the most populous counties that make up uh, our central Arkansas core. And then I'm proud to represent White County, which is Searcy, Van Buren County, Conway County, which is Moralton, and then Perry County uh, out just west of the city, Perryville, and uh, that beautiful part of our state in the Washtenaw National Forest.
3: That's wonderful. That's wonderful, and we're we're so glad to have you. Congressman, let's shift topics for a moment, because I read yesterday morning this really wonderful uh, article that you wrote regarding the International Monetary Fund, and Chris and I discussed it, and we believe ourselves to be somewhat well-educated, but we don't know a lot about the International Monetary Fund, so can you explain to us and Dave's audience what the International Monetary Fund is, how it's funded, and what's going wrong right now with that International Monetary Fund, because you, as a, as a banker, as a businessman, really have an insight and in one of the great values that you provide to our Arkansans by representing them in Congress, by the way. Talk to us about the IMF, please.
4: Well, the pandemic is wreaking havoc across the country. We know the you know, horrific impact of over 20 million people unemployed in in America, and we've seen our GDP fall. And we're a rich country filled with bright, talented people who are, are on the way back. Think about a developing country hit by the pandemic.
3: Sorry, Congressman. Finish that answer, and then we're going to take a quick break here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Go ahead, Congressman.
4: Yeah. Quickly, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, was set up by the United States after World War II to help poor countries make sure they could get through tough economic times. And uh, what is happening now is that the Democrats, led by Dick Durbin over in the Senate and Maxine Waters here in the House, are trying to get money out of the IMF to give to Iran— Russia, Syria, Venezuela, you can't make this stuff up.
3: Oh, my gosh. We're going to pick up on that topic after this break. This is the Dave Ellsworth Show. I'm Robert Steinbuck, filling in for Dave all weekend next Monday. We have on the line with us, just for a few more minutes, Congressman French Hill. And, Congressman, I'm going to thank you in advance for joining us, because when the music starts to play, we may not have time to offer those wonderful things. You were talking to us about the International Monetary Fund and how the Democrats are seeking to use American taxpayer dollars to fund Iran and China. Please tell us more about this travesty
4: well the imf has members 189 countries and the united states is one of the largest contributors to the imf the other large countries in the world also contribute money to it and of course it's to make rescue loans to help uh, countries in financial trouble get through a tough time it was set about set up after world war ii But those are loans. The loans have to be repaid. They have to have a creditor agreement from other uh, lenders to those countries. But the Democrats are trying an end around. They're trying to uh, stop uh, the President Trump's administration from blocking this money. And they want to issue loans that would include loans to China, which doesn't need any money, Vladimir Putin's Russia, the Assad regime in Syria, and $20 billion even to Venezuela. And you say, well, why? It's because they're proposing an advanced uh, drawing, meaning where they people can draw down money, and in the rules of the IMF, it has to be uh, for every country. And this is not the way to do it. What President Trump and what the Republicans in the Congress want to do is, we'll only lend money to people who need it. We won't have a blanket loan to all the countries of the world, including these terror states. It's a terrible idea led by Maxine Waters in the House and Dick Durbin in the Senate.
3: I can't tell you, Congressman, how frustrated I am in general, how historically America has cut off its nose despite its face, how it gives away money and other aid to our enemies to people whose interests are diametrically opposed to ours. And this is just another example of it. And what's remarkable is that this IMF has been set up in a way that the average American, including me, including Chris, doesn't know what's going on in their operations. And it takes... Luckily, we have someone in Congress like you, with a banking background, with an understanding of these matters, to call it out. And unfortunately, I fear that we don't have enough elected officials who understand what's going on, and they're rubber-stamping these things. What can we do to stop this?
4: Well, we can re-elect Republicans in the House, 16 seats to take over the House, and send Speaker Pelosi back to the ice cream store in San Francisco we can hold the Republican leadership in the Senate, and we can reelect President Trump, who doesn't put up with this kind of nonsense. This is the sort of ridiculous policy that we have <laughs> spent time on in this country for too long. And it's time we uh, take a different approach. And there are ways to help our most impoverished countries in this world that are hit with coronavirus. And I'm working on it every day as a part of my committee responsibility. I'm the senior Republican on the committee that oversees the World Bank and oversees the IMF, and I take that responsible uh, responsibility seriously. But this kind of idea is not the use of hard-earned taxpayer money here or the taxpayer's money from any of the other countries that support the IMF.
3: It's really just a travesty how the left sees American taxpayer dollars, and as you aptly point out, taxpayer dollars from other wealthier countries as well, as a piggy bank to fund, amongst others, terrorists. terrorists. Well, here, you it's know, really... let's
4: let's, let's, let's hit the hypocrisy button. This, the Democrats, led by Maxine Waters, has keeps yelling and screaming for four and a half years that somehow Donald Trump is a Russian agent and is somehow, you know, uh, coddling these countries like. No one has been tougher on Russia than Trump. No one has uh, held uh, the line on Assad better than Trump. No one is changing the dynamic with the G7, the biggest countries in the world, about unifying against China's predatory credit practices and military exercises around the country than Trump. And yet it's argued that it's the opposite. It is absolutely Alice in Wonderland. And I don't know if Maxine Waters is the rabbit or not. But she can definitely believe 10 impossible things before breakfast. That's no doubt, because she has no understanding of the way the world is really working. And she just cares about beating Trump as president and making sure the Republicans don't take back the House.
3: Congressman, why has it been that the Democrats, and mind you, maybe some Republicans as well, historically have have so favored China, when China's interests have always been diametrically opposed to to ours. What is the history that led to that?
4: The history goes back to the late 1980s and early uh, 1990s, particularly after the Tiananmen Square massacre, where China, the Chinese Communist Party, killed thousands of its own citizens protesting uh, in Beijing. The idea was, look, let's make China follow the rules, and if they follow the rules over time, they'll become a more open society. That's, I think, the, the operating premise of the 1990s. We've tried it for 30 years, and it has failed. And what President Trump has said, look, we have to reset relations with China. They're not following the world's rules. When we say, do you follow the world's rules, we'll let you in the World Trade Organization. That happened at the end of the Clinton administration, the beginning of the George W. Bush administration, and they simply flaunted it. They did not follow the rules. And so they've never paid a price until Trump got elected for breaking the rules in the military, breaking the rules in diplomacy, breaking the rules in trade, breaking the rules in technology around the world. And I think the countries are waking up to it. Boris Johnson is uh, right there with President Trump. He's formed a group called the D-10 the top democracies of the world, to argue we need to work together to preserve Western values around the world and push back against uh, what China's attempting to do to go dominate the world.
3: And we see news about how China is supportive of Biden getting elected over Trump, but we heard everything about, oh, Russia, Russia, Russia. But nothing about, in the mainstream media at least, about how China supports Biden. Of course they support Biden. Biden is essentially in bed with the Chinese when compared to the hard line that President Trump has All right, Trump guys, we got 15
1: on. seconds. I hate to cut the Congressman, work, but, Love uh, being uh, Congressman wonder, thank you very it's, much it's for your time to have today. You Robert, we'll it, be back. we got to hit uh, Rush Limbaugh's morning update. Gentlemen, we'll talk to you later. Thank you very much. It's time for Rush.
3: This is show. And I am Robert Stomach, filling in for Dave all week and next Monday. We just had a wonderful segment with Congressman French Hill. Folks, if after hearing that segment, uh, you're not motivated to know that we need to get everybody out to vote for the congressman because you never know. You just never know what can happen in an election. How well informed he is on these important and complicated issues, including the International Monetary Fund. Who knows about this stuff? But it's your taxpayer dollars going to fund it. So if you want someone watching your hard-earned money as the leftists, and by the way, some Republicans, unfortunately as well, want to give it away to terrorist nations, uh, then you are not paying attention to your best interests. And the way that protect your best interests and the interests of America in general to so make sure you get out and vote for Congressman French Hill. I endorse him. In any event, we move on, as we always do on the Dave Ellsworth show, to further topics of the day. Uh, Chris Corbett is still with us. He will be with us throughout the show. And joining us is my colleague, my friend, and Democrat. Liberal, I dare say, but he can correct me if I'm wrong on the latter. Josh Silverstein, a fellow professor at the University of Arkansas Little Rock Bowen School of Law. Both of our views are our views alone, not necessarily those of the Bowen Law School or any other constituent part, as well as the overall University of Arkansas system. Josh, thank you for joining us. And why don't you tell us why you're joining the Dave Ellswick Show
0: this morning? Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. And the reason I'm joining is to provide some points regarding the proposed sales tax that will be permanently added to our Constitution if Issue 1 passes in the November election. This tax will provide permanent, constitutionally uh, required funding to the Arkansas Highway Department, the Arkansas Department of Transportation, RDOT, as it's generally called, permanently. And the Arkansas Department of Transportation is an agency that is not receiving sufficient oversight from the state legislature or the governor. It is spending money on projects like the 30 Crossing project in Little Rock that has been labeled a boondoggle. So it's already wasting large amounts of money and now this is a proposal to give it that money permanently through a general sales tax rather than more rational and equitable sources of funding, such as fuel taxes and sales taxes on automobiles and the like. Jackson,
3: you're going to have to help me out here because I'm a little bit confused. We have an overwhelmingly Republican legislature. We've got a, a Republican governor. Uh, and I thought conservatives were anti-tax, so they would want certainly to be against embedding a tax in the Constitution so that there is not ongoing oversight by our elected officials. And the flip side, you are a Democrat. I thought you are for big taxes, giving away uh, the taxpayer dollars. Why? What's going on here that you seem to be aligned with conservative values? And it strikes me that if this thing is on the ballot, there must be some Republicans who are in favor. Is this true? In favor of embedding a permanent tax in the Constitution? Tell me it ain't so. Uh,
0: Unfortunately, it is so. The opposition to the tax is a really broad coalition of liberal, environmental, community and neighborhood groups like the Sierra Club and Arkansas Autobond stretching all the way to the right with conservative organizations like Arkansans for Prosperity and the Arkansas Liberty Coalition and some of the Tea Party chapters. So there's this broad coalition opposed to this tax, including, as you rightly note, People like me on the left who are sympathetic to higher taxes in some circumstances, when it's rational, when it makes sense, when we don't think the money's going to be wasted. On the other hand, you've got the Chamber of Commerce and the transportation industry who really wanted this, who wanted this tax support for particular industries that work related to roads. And those industries got the support of our existing Republican legislature. That is exactly right.
3: That's a a crime. Josh, as you well know, I will call out Democrats and Republicans if they go against good principles. Now, I espouse conservative principles and i will call out both of them if they violate conservative principles obviously that results in me likely calling out democrats more than republicans because republicans in general are more conservative than democrats but in this instance i have to call out both democrats and many republicans for supporting big government a lack of oversight and big taxes we have to vote no On issue one, we have to vote no on embedding an increase in taxation and making it permanent in the Constitution. I've never even heard of such a notion. How can you teach constitutional issues in your classes how can we have a democratic, and I, by that, as you well know, I don't mean the party? How can we have a democratic oversight of the operation of government if you build in a guaranteed tax to the Constitution?
0: No, that's exactly right. Tax policy should be driven by legislation. It should be adjusted year in and year out or every few years as economic and government funding circumstances change. Embedding this tax in the Constitution will make it extremely difficult to eliminate or modify the tax if circumstances change, as they almost certainly do, because change is constant. And so, yes, the tax is a bad idea on its own terms. Arkansas already has, by every measure, one of the highest overall sales taxes in the country, and one of the lowest overall fuel taxes. So if we were to provide additional funding for highways, it should first come from a source that we're not sufficiently tapping, like taxes on gasoline and especially diesel. So the trucking industry pays more of its fair share for the damages on the roads. But even if we're going to raise taxes in any form to bring in new revenue, it should not be done in the Constitution. It should not be done as a general sales tax. It should be done with taxes focused on the roads. And we definitely need an accountable Arkansas Highway Department that isn't going to waste a billion dollars. That's not an exaggeration, a billion dollars on a project on seven miles of road in Little Rock that is unnecessary will damage Little Rock and thus will suck resources away from the rest of the state where that money is much more desperately needed.
2: Well, it sure, shows you
3: wouldn't have unaccountable, unaccountable bureaucrats running the show. It's the most dangerous operation of government. By the way, uh, you mentioned the fuel tax, and I'm not necessarily, I haven't looked into it, but I'm not necessarily in favor of a fuel tax. I point that out to simply say, What about the general revenue? Why are we – we've skipped two steps here to get to embedding this sales tax in the Constitution, the notion of doing so. Let's be clear, it hasn't been done yet, and hopefully uh, Dave's listeners will get out there and vote no, vote no on issue one, vote no on a permanent tax increase, vote no on putting a tax increase in the Arkansas Constitution. It just baffles my mind that we're even having this discussion. And you brought up a great distinction uh, during the break when we were talking uh, off air. Uh, I support business and I support consumers because I don't think those interests are adverse because I support the operation of the market. And we have organizations like the Chamber that doesn't support a free market. They support only one half of the free market. They support only business. And now they are supporting this increase because they want to funnel taxpayer dollars from hardworking Arkansans into the pockets of big business at the expense of taxpayers and at the expense of consumers. What do you say about that?
0: So as a general rule, businesses favor business. And sometimes, in fairness, most of the time, that means favoring the market. But in many circumstances, businesses do not favor the market because the market will bring in new competition for them. And so many businesses support government regulation as a way of stifling competition. And so what you often find is... conservative conservative business-oriented interests that are pro-business rather than pro-market. And this looks like one of those circumstances where there is a, a government policy that will aid certain business interests and not aid broader free market and other interests that people on the left and the right care about. Uh, I
3: think that time, Russ, tell me if you're with us, is it about that
1: time that we take a break? You can go ahead and take a break right now, Robert. i tell you what, I'll take us to break if you don't mind. You're listening to the Dave Ellswick Show. Russ McKinney in here with Robert Steinbuck. Uh, Chris Corbett is out there, and uh, you'll have Josh, to forgive me. I believe Josh it's Josh Silvestri is our guest. We'll be back with more here in just a moment. On 101.1 FM, the answer.
2: This is Dave
3: So I'm Robert Stomach, filling in for Dave all week and next Monday. On the air with us right now, Chris Corbett, local attorney, local professional engineer. And our guest is Josh Silverstein from the Bowen School of Law at the University of Arkansas, Little Rock. His views and uh, his alone and not necessarily of the university. Josh, we've been talking about this really just offensive proposal uh, in issue one that's on the ballot on November to embed a permanent tax to give a half penny per dollar of sales directly to the unelected bureaucrats in the highway department. And I want you to talk a little bit more about the notion, these broad ideas of how democracy is supposed to operate and why we would never or should never allow an unelected bureaucracy to be guaranteed funding so that we can't do anything if they operate in an an improper fashion. That is, how is that not the same as some sort of dictatorship, some sort of autocracy, some sort of communist nation?
0: I'll make two points related to that. The first is, the purpose of a constitution is to set the general framework for society. It's to put in place the fundamental rules that will govern how the democracy operates, and it's designed to pull out, away from democracy, fundamental rights like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the right to bear arms, the right against searches and seizures. This narrow set Of principles everything else is supposed to be governed by the rough-and-tumble of everyday year-to-year democratic politics that's the purpose of a Constitution set the framework for government protect fundamental rights this tax is inconsistent with that it puts one of those things that is supposed to be a day-to-day year-to-year democratically decided issue and puts it in the Constitution then On top of that, it gives funding to an agency that isn't sufficiently regulated by those elected officials. One of the problems we have in this country is independent agencies that have too much authority. I'm a Democrat. I think we need agencies to help implement the law. But those agencies need significant oversight from the people we're elected. And the problem with RDOT, with the Department of Transportation in this state, it it does not receive sufficient oversight. And so it ends up engaging in projects like wasting a billion dollars on an unnecessary project in Little Rock to make changes to I-30. So you've hit it exactly right. This doesn't belong in the Constitution And even if we're going to raise money, we need to make sure that the agencies that spend that money are receiving adequate supervision and responding to the needs of the entire state rather than particular constituencies, such as the trucking industry.
3: To highlight the absurdity of the lack of oversight uh, over the Arkansas Department of Transportation, you aptly point out this billion-dollar proposal uh, and that I want to talk about who's in alliance in terms of pursuing this billion-dollar proposal. It's the Arkansas Department of Transportation that's supposed to be run by our Republican government. And there is an alliance between the Arkansas DOT and the mayor of Little Rock. Isn't that right? And no one doubts that the mayor of Little Rock is a leftist, or in your terms, at least a very strong Democrat. So the Arkansas Department of Transportation, that's supposed to have oversight from a conservative executive and a conservative legislature, is in cahoots with a Democratic um, mayor of Little Rock. Am I right on that?
0: Yes. Well, remember that the Democratic mayor of Little Rock used to be part of the Arkansas Department of Transportation. And so he has long been one of the supporters of this project. And he, and in fairness, some other... Folks like him believe that widening Interstate 30 is necessary because of long term traffic patterns. But the evidence they have for that is very weak. And on top of the coronavirus possibly changing transportation patterns, there's even less of a concern. Uh, On top of that, there are multiple other ways that we can improve traffic flow around the city of Little Rock without devastating the downtown area and ripping up so much beyond the highway that will really hurt development in the city. And we don't need 10 lanes. that, That widening is just unnecessary. And so we're wasting all of this money on an unnecessary project when that funding could go to needed projects, not just in Little Rock, not just in northwest Arkansas, but around the state. So, yes, there are some strange bedfellows in the politics, both supporting I-30 and those who are opposed to it. Well, I think it's something
3: really to be highlighted, in fact, that the Republican administration is supporting the pet project of the Democrat mayor of Little Rock, it doesn't necessarily mean it's always a bad idea when Republicans support programs that are proposed by Democrats. But frankly, particularly in a state like ours, we should be skeptical when a, de- when a Republican administration is supporting the pet project of the Democrat mayor of the very liberal city of Little Rock. That's quite a contrast. And we would need a significant explanation for why those interests both coincide and why they are justified. And I have heard zero, zero in support of them. So I think at minimum, it should raise concerns for all conservative listeners of the Dave Ellswick show. It's, It's a dramatic problem when we are moving more and more towards autocracy and further away from the democratic process, the process by which our legislature has a voice. The last time I checked, the legislature is one of the three co-equal branches of government, and what this would do is, this proposal would take out of the hands of the legislature the ability to control funding to the highway department, and would even limit the ability of the executive itself to control it.
1: That's That's all the time you got, Robert. Thank you very much. We will talk to you later.
3: Welcome to show and I am Robert Stomach filling in for Dave. It is Wednesday. We are in the seven o'clock hour and we have Chris Corbett on the line with us. Of course, Chris is often on the show with me and Dave and Chris is an attorney here in the Little Rock Conway area. He's a patent attorney as well. He's an engineer and a professional engineer. Those are two different titles, the latter of which is quite a significant endeavor. Indeed, Chris, as you recall, This morning, we spoke to Josh Silverstein, my colleague uh, at the UALR Bowen School of Law, or I should say UA Little Rock Bowen School of Law. Both his and my views are ours alone and not necessarily reflective of the school. And we were talking about this absolutely horrific idea that is on the ballot. So voters pay attention. Issue number one is whether we embed a permanent tax for Half a cent out of every dollar in sales tax uh, and then funnel that money to a bunch of unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats in the highway department. It's an absolutely awful idea. Josh Silverstein came to speak us, to us about it. And Josh Silverstein is a Democrat. And so what's really interesting here is you have uh, the true bipartisan alliance where right-thinking Democrats and right-thinking conservatives oppose a tax increase, a tax increase that's embedded in the Constitution, and a tax increase that goes directly to unelected bureaucrats without the oversight of the legislature, amongst others. Chris, you had worked in the highway department. Tell us uh, your thoughts particularly given the intersection of your conservative conservative interests relative to keeping taxation low and your experience with the highway department.
2: Man, thank you, Rob. There, there are so many issues surrounding this, this tax. Um, as an engineer, of course, I'm for infrastructure. I want public money being spent on infrastructure. Wastewater treatment plants, water treatment plants, roads, uh, these things that are that could you know, that benefit all of society, all of our cases. Um, and when I look at this, it, it should not definitely not be embedded in the Constitution. It needs to be flexible. This tax is um, what they want to do with it is make it uh, from a temporary tax, which is set to expire in 2023 they want to make it permanent and so there's several problems with it one is the permanency of it if this gets in here and it's permanent it's going to be dang near impossible to get rid of it and we just don't know what the future holds you need to be have you need to have the legislature our elected representatives be able to enact taxes do away with taxes um, and, for, and I'll give you one example. What if 10 years from now all the cars are electric? Electric cars are not buying gas. Um, so they're not paying taxes when they travel the roads. So there's, there's, a, there's a general notion that the users of a, of a product or service should pay taxes on it, like um, liquor, uh, cigarettes. You buy cigarettes, you pay a tax on it. buy liquor, you pay a tax on it. And so the users need to be paying the taxes. In this situation, um, everybody's going to pay for it. The single mom is going to pay the same amount in taxes, the same rate for all the roads as um, someone that someone that uses the roads prolifically, uh, a trucking company, um, uh, Amazon delivery services. Um, they're they're going to be paying just the same amount as these big companies. And so you can say this this. This tax might even hurt the poor. Um, there's well, there's so, so many things
3: about this. Go ahead. It's such a wonderful insight because basically this tax is a giveaway to the to both unelected bureaucrats and trucking companies. That's why you see yeah. the chamber backing this. This is a giveaway to trucking companies. Really? We need to give money from hardworking uh, uh Arkansans to the trucking companies, they perform a wonderful service for which they are paid. And this is a subsidy, a a corporate subsidy to the trucking companies. How is that fair?
2: (laughs) Spread out across the population that's going to hit the poor working class families just as hard as it will hit a guy making half a million dollars a year. And, um, so when you, you just go back to some, let's, let's talk about general principles on taxation, right? What say will that person have in where that money is spent? So if we go back to how the Highway Department set up. So the Highway Department set up with five commissioners. Those five commissioners are supposed to come from five different geographical regions of the state. And the, the thought is that, they will come to Little Rock, they will sit in a board meeting at the State Highway Department, and they will advocate for their area of Arkansas. So let's talk about where all these roads are Pulaski County, Little Rock, and then up in Northwest Arkansas. There's been a long, uh, divisive, um, you know, arguments for El Dorado and uh, Lake Village. There's no major roads going down there. Would, if we put a four lane, double highway into El Dorado would that expand the economic opportunities for the folks down in El Dorado and uh, Murphy oil man how cool would that be but do you think that they would ever have the power to get one of that get something like that that done no it's just not gonna happen Um, but that's how it's supposed to work but a majority of the money is being spent in Northwest Arkansas and in Pulaski County, like this I-30 crossing, a billion dollars on a on an eight-lane double highway, you know, over the city of Little Rock, and that's what the big bill also is about. Um, where is this money being spent? Who has control over it? The general citizens of Arkansas don't have a say in it because uh, the the deck has been stacked. The deck has been stacked by Governor Hutchinson. By the current mayor of Wooderock, which is a former commissioner on the highway department. And this new um, commissioner put in uh, to replace my late friend, Tom Schick, an engineer and producer of steel, Schick Steel. His son's now running the company, Patrick Schick. And um, so the DAC is stacked stacked by the governor in in promoting this issue one and making this 0.5% sales tax permanent. Uh, The citizens need to get informed on this, and they need to vote this permanent tax down. And it needs to be subject to um, the legislature. The legislature needs to control the purse strings, not the executive branch with a permanent tax. Uh, Josh Silverstein had some excellent comments on that. He's right on point about how this taxation should work.
3: It's, It's really remarkable when you think about it. Uh, when you have some Republicans aligned with a Democratic mayor of Little Rock, again, I'm not saying that you could never support a Democrat, but the Democratic mayor of Little Rock is far left, so it would really have to be a unique circumstance in which that occurs, and this ain't it. Remember, the Democratic mayor of Little Rock is the one that brought in this new chief of police in Little Rock, who is an absolute fiasco. I just read in the newspaper yesterday that there are even more lawsuits against him for running the police department like an autocracy and creating a hostile work environment. Remember, that this is the police chief who over all of the recommendations from everyone in the chain of command decided to fire the police officer who was in a justifiable shooting. That police officer's name is Starks. And this out of state police commissioner fired that police officer because that police officer did his job because he defended himself against the use of deadly force. And yet the police commissioner acted completely politically. He was brought in as a political appointee. He's from out of state. The mayor brought him in uh, without any significant understanding of his ability to manage this police force, but rather his priority was to have one of his political cronies in office. The mayor wanted The police officer fired the commissioner, therefore, did the bidding of the mayor because the commissioner is the lapdog of the mayor. And he fired that police officer and a Democratic uh, judge in Little Rock overturned that firing. That's how egregious the behavior of this police commissioner is and the mayor. And it's that cabal that runs Little Rock that is in cahoots in pursuing this permanent constitutional uh, 0.5% general sales tax, that would be permanent. I think I said permanent twice, but it's so permanent we can say it
2: three times. (laughs) That's right. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you just said it's amazing that we've got a Republican governor teaming up with this Democratic mayor. Oh. It's a travesty, and um, it, it, it blows my mind um, that when you step back and look at the things that have happened with the police chief, Officer Starks, who's now resigned, the, These, this is not someone that a Republican governor needs to be aligning himself with. These, The consequences of what the current mayor of Little Rock is doing are going to be long Term, They brought this outside, out-of-state police chief in over two very qualified Arkansans, the Alice Falk and our current Sheriff Eric Kiggins. These were assistant police chiefs that were just passed over for the job. It was amazing to me that these two qualified individuals did not get that position. They care about Arkansas. They are born in Arkansas. They're raised in Arkansas. Not someone from out of state that's got collection lawsuits on him, and now what? I think it's up to three, maybe five, federal employment lawsuits against him for hostile work environment. It's it's outrageous.
1: All right, guys, let's take a time out real quick. We're going to get back to this discussion here in just a moment. You're listening to the Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM, The Answer.
2: This is a. Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck,
3: on with Chris Corbett. We are talking about issue one on this upcoming ballot in November, or is that on the ballot in the upcoming November? I don't know. Chris, you were saying aptly how this is such a terrible idea, particularly given that the money would go directly to the highway department without having sufficient oversight from the legislature. And I think there's a real parallel here to be discussed. As you know, several of our friends, uh, the senators in, and I think maybe some legislators uh, in the, the, the state or house members, as you say, in the state government and the state legislature uh, are suing to ha- to be called back into session. Because as you know, the Arkansas legislature meets in general session only every other year but during this pandemic, uh, and in which we are operating under emergency orders, these legislators have said, Well, it's time for us to be involved. And so they are suing to be called back into session. I think there's a real parallel here. And that parallel is that it is important for us to have the legislature involved in government oversight. They're not the only one. I, I don't want them in lieu of the governor. I like this governor and I want them I want this governor to be involved, of course, as well. I hope Tim Griffin will be the next governor and I would want him to be involved in all of the important decisions as well. But Tim probably recognizes better being the lieutenant governor, which overlaps as president of the Senate or some title thereof, but essentially the tie splitting vote in the Senate and one who oversees the Senate that we need to respect the legislative branch as much as we respect the executive branch as well, by the way, as the judicial branch. I respect all branches of our government, even though I think sometimes some of the members of each of those branches could do a better job. And so it's remarkable to me that we're even talking about the idea of bypassing the legislature entirely, because that's what This proposed amendment does. It creates essentially a new unelected branch of government, which is the bureaucracy in the highway department. If the highway department has permanent constitutional funding, well, they're a separate branch of government with no checks and balances because the legislature can't cut their funding. It's guaranteed in the Constitution. The executive can't cut their funding because it's guaranteed in the Constitution. The judicial branch can't cut their funding because it's guaranteed in the Constitution. Never before have I seen or have we heard of an unelected bureaucracy having equal status to the three branches of government. What do you think about that, (laughs)
2: you're you're dead on it Well, you you get several issues there um you know could could the could this thing be abused could this tax money be abused yes um and the the, where is the legislature in this where is the, the the third branch the legislative branch and where will they be in this they're totally they're totally out if this thing gets approved in an amendment to the arkansas constitution um you know uh we've we discussed before uh that we think the the governor's overstepped his bounds with the uh uh the doctor that's not nate smith this new guy romero um and there's been a lawsuit filed with dave Ellswick being a plaintiff in the lawsuit he's on firm ground with this uh with this lawsuit um i, I think the judge is going to rule in this lawsuit that they the executive branch stepped outside the uh, boundaries of the constitution in ordering closures of certain business and keeping this emergency order in place. I think the judge in this case is going to find that his actions were unconstitutional. And um, in, in hindsight, in retrospect, if, if, the, if the governor had called the legislature into session and the legislature then voted this, Thing into this, these emergency orders or extending it, or they use the rulemaking process. The lawsuit wouldn't have much, which would have much merit in my mind. But what what Governor Hutchinson is doing and with this lawsuit, you're right on point about how the executive branch is just usurping the legislative branch. And um, I think I think we've gotten some some good news out of out of state of Pennsylvania where. Several counties filed suit against that governor, Governor Wolf, and its um, state public health doctor, a guy named uh, Doctor Levine, I think. The judge in that state, and a federal judge in that state, has ruled Governor Pennsylvania Governor's Tom Wolf's uh, uh, directives unconstitutional. So here we go. Um, yeah, and, uh, I, I had a quote here. Yeah. yeah, I'll give us a quote. I to hear it. Yeah, the quote here, the the governor's office out of of Pennsylvania says this. He says, the administration is disappointed with the result and will seek a stay of the decision and file an appeal. The actions taken by the administration were mirrored by governors across the country. Oh, just because another state did it, it's okay in this state. Okay, Um, the actions taken by the administration were mirrored by governors across the country and saved and continue to save lives in the absence of federal action. Oh, my gosh. They asked of to fill. This decision is especially worrying as Pennsylvania and the rest of the country are likely to face a challenging time with the possible resurgence of COVID-19 and the flu in the fall and winter. What was the quote all that brings to my mind? Those who trade security for freedom shall have neither.
3: Well, it's like that. The interesting point here, Chris, related directly to what you're saying, is that I am fairly confident that all or virtually all of the proposals that the governor has put in place uh, would be approved by the legislature. And I am, as I've said, supportive of, of this governor, and I'm supportive of making sure that we keep safe in Arkansas. So this is not a question about whether or not uh, this proposal uh, is a, w- would pass or would be enacted. It's not right. a discussion that it's a bad idea to shut this down or open this up. It's none of that. It is merely and solely a discussion as to whether or not the legislature should be involved in making that decision. You're for telemedicine? So is the legislature. They're for it. So why don't you put that proposal before the legislature so that you have the democratic process fulfilled? So this is not about, oh, well, uh, you know, if, if this lawsuit w- uh, wins, we're going to have to shut down telemedicine. And all No, we're not. That's that, that is, that's a lie. If someone's out there saying that we're going to have to shut down these good ideas, that's a lie or a fundamental and, dramatic failure to understand the obvious so much so that whoever would make such a claim shouldn't be talking on the topic because that's ignorant talking or as we like to say ignit
2: so Ignor- yeah, you know ignorant. great point yeah that's a great point rob what you're talking about is this threat that oh if, if this lawsuit wins, we're gonna you're just gonna defund you guys it. have to it's take kinda, a break but we gotta takes-
1: take a break right now it's time for the news You're listening to The Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 The Answer.
2: This is The
3: Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck, filling in for Dave. For the remainder of this week and next Monday, please tune in. We're talking with Chris Corbett about issue number one on the upcoming November ballot, and that's a proposal to embed in the Arkansas Constitution a 0.5 percent sales tax for everybody to pay and that money gets funneled to an unelected bureaucracy that is the department of highways with no oversight from the legislature and not fully accountable to any of the other branches of government essentially creating a fourth branch of government of an unelected bureaucracy that is a very very dangerous idea and chris before the break you were talking about this and how you saw this as a problem, a problem in terms of its lack of democracy and a problem in terms of having the highway department operate as a standalone. What insights can you share with us from your time working for the highway department?
2: That's a good question. Um, so I, I worked for the highway department four years while I went to law school at night, NICE, And um, civil engineers love money being spent on infrastructure. Civil engineers make their living designing bridges, uh, wastewater plants, water treatment plants, water pipes. And so um, the general notion that, hey, we're going to have more money for infrastructure is fantastic. But the way that this has been uh, going, is proposed to be done is ridiculous. It's absolutely outrageous. How in the world can we have a, uh, a constitutional amendment that enacts a 0.5% sales tax, permanent. You know, that can, I, I've got to, I'm going way back here, Rob, but I believe the 16th Amendment of the United States Constitution created an income tax, right? But that's a guideline. It's like, okay, yes. The federal government can create an income tax via the 16th Amendment in the United States Constitution. That, it did not say, we're going to tax every citizen 10% across the board. No, that was set up to, to where the legislature would have some input in that. Um, maybe, the, if, maybe we can play devil's advocate here for a moment. Let's go to the other side. You want a tax that's permanent for the highway department. Guess what? We're taxed to death. How about redirecting? How about a constitutional amendment that redirects existing taxes, a portion of existing taxes, to the highway department, maybe? There's, there's, def- there's different ways to do this, and a permanent sales tax via the Arkansas Constitution is not the way to do it. Um, you've got well, to have legislative it, input. Go ahead.
3: It's just a remarkable insight, the notion that we live in Arkansas, uh, an allegedly conservative southern state. And yet we are one of the highest tax states in the country. In the country, Chris. (laughs) My sister lives in Massachusetts, and she pays less in taxes than I do in Arkansas. I moved to Arkansas for a variety of reasons, including the job that I was offered. But I was looking to move to a state like Arkansas because I wanted to move to the south. I wanted to move to better weather. I wanted to be in a more conservative environment. And I presumed incorrectly that I would be saving money. Because I would be allowed to keep more of my hard-earned money, and it's absolutely untrue when my sister who lives in liberal leftist enclave of Massachusetts pays less in taxes than I do. It's a crime.
2: It's an absolute crime. It is. It's, that That's where we need more conservatives to stand up to this thing, uh, to these taxes. And we've got a governor that's not even – that's for it. Um. Republican governor, you know, he's getting out of office in 2022. He's not up for re-election. Maybe maybe that's why he's promoting these things. And in in cohort, in his cohort here, the mayor of Little Rock, a leftist mayor that's um, got the police department in shambles. Um, He's in co-host with him. That was previously on the Arkansas Highway Commission. Um, He's got the back stepped on this thing. He's got it stacked. You know, let's go off on a bit
3: of a tangent, although we've talked about this during these segments already. What the heck is going on with the Little Rock Police Department? What kind of nightmare? Uh, People are fleeing. Residents are fleeing, I think, right? And cops are fleeing. I heard from someone that cops are looking to go to neighboring police departments because they no longer want to work in the little rock police department have you heard any of these rumors as well
2: you know let's we can talk about that for a moment let's think about it Uh, we've got um officer starks that just resigned this is an officer that wanted to keep his job this is an officer that was unfortunately in a tragic situation defending his life prevented himself from being run over by a five-time felon right on drugs in his system and he fought for his job. He fought for his job. He lost an administrative hearing. He hired this attorney to, to take it to the uh, uh, county court to overturn the administrative decision. He won, got reinstated, and now the police chief has you know, put him in such a hostile environment, put him down there on the 12, in the 12th Street area, very rough area of Little Rock, and he's finally given up. He's like, okay, I'm done. Um, I did my job, and now I'm being punished for it. And um, he's he's resigned. And so, how is that going to look toward these you know these other officers that are trying, that are out there putting their lives on the line, uh, defending our citizens? Uh, it's not a good situation. This is there's, there needs to be some major changes in the mayor's office in the police uh, divisions and um, we've got to have this confidence put back in our in our policing um, sheriff Higgins is uh, how he won the sheriff's office with uh, community policing get the community involved uh, there's no doubt in my mind that community wants a safe environment to, to live in and raise their kids people want these things the question is how to do it, it not with not with our current mayor and not with our current police chief um, so yeah, I think,
3: a, I it's think it's you've fit. hit the the issue on the head. How do you fix it? We need a new mayor and we need, uh, and we then need the that. new mayor can put in a new police chief because this police chief, uh, it, it is past due time that he's out. He's out. He needs to be out. out. And
2: this yeah, mayor I mean, needs some. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, we need, we need some, you know, we've got a lot of, um, city councilmen turning over. Maybe we need to get, um, some more conservative city councilmen in here. We've got these city councilmen in Little Rock that have been there for years. And um, Joan Adcox, she's got to go. Um, we've got get some of these people out of here that are for this these leftist crazy ideas. Um, you know, this I'm fighting for the landlords. This rental inspection code they just got certified as a class action. A class was just certified here just recently on Monday by a federal judge's order. It's just hurting the city. It's hurting the poor. It's uh, it's government overreach. It's it's administrative state that's it's out of control, and now we're paying for it. Now the consequences are here. Um, we need some conservative leadership in the city of Little Rock, in our school districts, in our government. They need to be accountable to the hardworking people in Arkansas that are doing their jobs, getting up, going to work, and, and trying to raise the families. So there's going to be some major changes that need to happen in the city of Rock. Well, you
3: raise a very important uh, case and a very important topic, Chris, that I think we will talk about now. Uh, we have a break coming up shortly, and then we'll finish it up in our last segment. And that is that you representing hardworking Arkansans who invest money into houses or apartments so that they can rent them out at reasonable prices with good quality were subjected to unconstitutional controls by the city of Little Rock that sought to bypass the state and federal constitution. They said, if you want to rent a building, you got to sign this paper, pay this fee and waive your constitutional rights. No, I don't. That's the whole point about the constitutional rights is that I have those constitutional rights and I have them if I want to go to the supermarket, if I want to go walk down the street, or if I want to rent my apartment out to somebody else. And you uh, were representing uh, someone who owned uh, a few small pieces of uh, rental properties, uh, and he by the way, you and both, you and he are graduates uh, of the school at which I teach, the Bowen School of Law, and The city decided to go in without warrants, search his properties, do all sorts of illegal activities, and violate his rights. And you sued, and you asked that a class be designated for other people in a similar situation, and the judge said, absolutely. The judge said, you're right, a class should be designated, because the city, it's just another example of a runaway runaway bureaucracy headed by an inept executive that is the mayor of little rock that's right i said it an inept executive you know the good thing chris is that this mayor has one saving grace he can always say that he's not the worst mayor in america because the worst mayor (laughs) in america is mayor de blah blah blasio in new york so this mayor can say that he's at worst the second worst mayor in the united states so that can be his saving grace. But this mayor looks for every opportunity to miss an opportunity. And one example was when he chose this buffoon as the police chief. And then the next example is his inability to control his own bureaucracy when it comes to issuing licenses for rental units and his overall failure to improve the lives of people who live in Little Rock.
1: This mayor is yeah. not doing his job. Hey, guys, not. we need to take a quick break. I know you guys are going to get into this a little bit more in the last segment, but if you'll hold your powder, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Dave Ellswick Show. Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. Chris Corbett is the guest right now, and uh, we'll be back after this. I'm Robert Steinbuck filling in
3: for Dave on the line with us is our frequent guest slash co-host, Chris Corbett, local attorney here in Little Rock and Conway area, and also a professional engineer. Chris, we are now talking about the Little Rock government and how dysfunctional it is from top down. One of the things I want to say is that I understand that David Allen Bubbas, the owner of David's Burgers, is considering running or is running for the city council here in Little Rock. And so I can tell you right now that I endorse David Allen Bubbus to be a city councilman in Little Rock to bring some smart and reasonable and conservative and common sense thinking uh, to Little Rock government. And David, as you know, Chris, uh, David Allen Bubbus was also a student at the Bowen School of Law. And so We really see some remarkable and powerful actions from graduates of the Bowen School of Law here in Little Rock throughout Arkansas and indeed elsewhere in the country in fact. And I look forward to David Allen Bubbis running for city council and winning a city council position here in Little Rock so we can start to right this ship that is really just drifting in the wind to extend this analogy. Little Rock is, is in terrible shape, and in large measure, it is in terrible shape because we have an absolutely terrible, terrible chief of police. And it's time for this chief of police to be out and for the mayor to start exercising some control over his government. I am wholly unimpressed with this mayor, but maybe, possibly, we can hope he can slightly improve his performance. He only has upside potential. There's nowhere else to go. I can't get any worse. The only one worse than him is the governor of New York, excuse me, the mayor of New York. And you can never get that bad. I have to admit, no other mayor could get as bad as the mayor of New York City. So he's got nowhere to go. He's number two. And so let's hope the mayor (laughs) seeks to improve his job performance, albeit modestly, by getting rid of this absolutely incompetent chief of police. He out, baby. He out, as far as I'm concerned. What do you think about that, Chris?
2: I, I'm 100% in agreement with you. Major changes need to happen. We need folks like David Allen Bubba in the city council. He's a property owner, he's a taxpayer, he's an employer, an employee, too. He works for the company, he makes these wonderful hamburgers. And, you know, it's, it's a, um, it's, we need folks like him to come in and bring some reason to the city of Little Rock. Little city Little Rock and Arkansas is a great state. Little Rock has this great potential, but we've got this leftist uh, agenda, this uh, un- uncontrollable administrative state that's just out of control. And um, I'm trying to rein it in with this federal lawsuit and this class action. Do I like suing the city? No. But you have to fight City Hall when they get out of control. We need somebody to step up and rein it back in, and that's what the, the federal lawsuit about, you know, about this rental inspection code. It's out of control. You know, Josh Silverstein alluded to that fact about how government steps in with some controls and some licensing agreements, which in fact may be endorsed by some bigger companies. All that does is prevent the little guy. From getting into the business, and that's what the state or the city of Little Rock's done with this um, this archaic and uh, abominable uh, rental inspection code. So, if I have one house and decide to um, rent it out, or I get moved out of state, I want to keep it. I want to rent it. These this is not some sort of oppression of the poor and renting out rat-infested or bug-infested, poor, dilapidated houses. This is not. Um, where we need – I need the government to protect me. I'm a renter, and I need government protection. No, you need to protect yourself. If you walk into a house and it's dilapidated, you've got a choice. Don't rent it, okay? Uh, you think landlords are out there hiding the fact that they have a – is there a faucet in there that doesn't work? How about walking over the faucet and turning it on for yourself to see if it works? How about walking around looking at the house before you rent it? Uh, Those are – these things – this notion that we need the government to protect us is outrageous, um, and in that fact, we so now we need to make some changes. We need a police force. We need a police force that's doing the right thing. We don't need a police force that's punishing um, someone like Officer Starks that's out there doing his job. Um, and and so I think I think the conservative right wing people have had. No, you would think that the current mayor being previously a banker would have some conservative strands running through his body. Like I got to loan some money. I'm going to be conservative in this. No, he's not. Um, he's given this police chief um, unfettered discretion to make these poor decisions. Matter of fact, he's endorsed his, his decisions in firing Officer Scott, uh, Stark, um, which was reversed by the court. Um, yeah, this, so this, we need more folks like David out, to run, um, and he's got a company to run, but he's invested in the city of Little Rock. He wants to see Little Rock do well. And we need more folks stepping up to the plate and running for office. Well,
3: this behavior by this police chief demonstrates in a microcosm what happens when you have an unelected bureaucracy taking control. Because the Little Rock Police Department is an unelected bureaucracy run by the police commissioner. Now, the police commissioner is subject to control by the mayor and by the, um, the city of Little Rock. What's the body called? I just said it. The city council. But the problem right. is that they are either too incompetent or in cahoots with the unelected bureaucrats that there's no effective oversight. Can you imagine what would happen at the state level with an under unelected bureaucracy in the highway department? And by the way, this is not the only instance when we see this odd coincidence of conservative and leftists harming the people. As you well know, uh, we represent a party uh, who was fired from the little rock school district by their unelected leftist Uh, um, school board, but that leftist school board was so incompetent that it was taken over by the state by Johnny key and Johnny Key's supposed to be a conservative, supposed to be a conservative, but he rubber stamps the decisions of the unelected bureaucrats that are still embedded in the school district. So we have unelected bureaucrats leftist bureaucrats who fired your client our client, in large measure, because she exposed cronyism and corruption in the Little Rock School District. Let me repeat that. Your client exposed right. cronyism and corruption in the Little Rock school district. And then as part of this mass layoff, this reduction in force, they fired her because they chose her to be fired because they didn't like that she was exposing corruption and cronyism. And then Johnny Key rubber stamps the local bureaucrats hiding of cronyism and corruption for their own personal benefit. And then All of them, the local bureaucrats, and Johnny Key, who has now succumbed to the control of the leftist bureaucrats in Little Rock, said she's not entitled, and other fired employees are not entitled to placement in another position pursuant to the reduction in force statutory rules enacted by the legislature, because it's not a reduction in force. Well, I don't know, you let go, like, I don't know, with 80 people, 100 people, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yep. well, they the law. Course. I hear the music playing in the background. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Stay tuned tomorrow and the rest of the week and Monday as I will be covering for Dave on The Dave Ellswick Show.